Like, I was just known as the kid at school, the two hot lesbian mothers. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> What more could you want, um, you know? <laughs> no, exactly. Hi, I'm Rose, and this is my wife, Rosie. Hi. We're expecting our first baby in the summer of 21. Rosie's carrying the baby. I am. And I'm carrying the weight of her mood swings. Hey! So if you're new, make sure you catch up with the last season to hear all about how we got here. And tune in every week to hear us gradually get more and more terrified of giving birth to a whole new responsibility. Good luck, us! To join in the conversation, use the hashtag RoseAndRosiePG. You're listening to Rose and Rosie Parental Guidance, a Spotify original podcast. Hello, welcome back. That was sensual. This I know week. because because it's coming across sensual, dear listener. Because <laughs> COVID has made me buy a sewing, two sewing machines. Yeah, one wasn't enough for you, so no. you've gone for two. I'm a Gemini, so uh, okay, I've got two. Okay. Um, and I made a scrunchie. Very impressive. Um, was it that impressive? I mean, I'm I'm all excuse- here. No, I'm all here to support your new hobbies. Okay, when it comes so to crafts, it's not that, it's not uh, no, that impressive. You, you, it was impressive, but you actually said, "Oh, I think I could have done it better." We had a bit of a panic, didn't we, Rosie? Um, yeah. I'm not too worried about the birth, like, like as in, it's not an impending thing that I'm like, oh, God, whew, the birth, the birth, you know. But I am panicking about actually raising a child forever, that it's a 24-7 day, you know, <laughs> seven a day a week, job. you know, full-time job that you Sorry. can never uncommit to, and it's freaking me out, even though this child is loved, this child is wanted, I want this baby, I love it so much, but am I freaking out about raising the child? Yeah, weirdly. It's going to be around all the time. Yeah, it's going to be around 24-7, but weirdly, I'm not actually freaking out about the newborn stage. I think, you know, once I change my first nappy or my thousandth nappy I'll be fine I'm worried about the tantrum stage now I'm like oh my god okay so hold on well the tantrum stage can come whatever I mean when does it normally come toddler yeah I'd say a bit older I don't know two terrible twos they say because I'm such a people pleaser and I know I'm just gonna give in and be like yeah have everything you want be spoiled be a little asshole whatever as long as you're quiet it's fine and we spoiled both our dogs even though we said with the second dog we were like we won't spoil it this time oh too late yeah it's happened so Rosie and I have been thinking a lot about what our baby's gonna be like um, growing up and and, you know, you just never know what you're going to have. And no. it's just such a, a crazy lottery. And and we thought it'd be really interesting to speak to Ollie Benjamin from the BBC documentary 25 Siblings and Me, because he is the product um, of donor sperm and he has two lesbian mums. Yeah. So it'll um, be like talking to our child grown up. That's exactly what it's going to be like. And it's also good <laughs> for when people always go, oh... Is your baby, you know, is it right morally that you raise your child without a father figure? Yeah. And it's like, well, Ollie's been raised without a father figure. Right. So. I want to hear exactly what it's like from Ollie's perspective as the child, because he's 21. Um, I think his mums were the first UK lesbian couple to go to America to actually have an egg swap with yeah. donor sperm. Because it wasn't it was, allowed in the UK. It wasn't the allowed in the UK. So they had a really complicated journey and for the time you know they were kind of breaking boundaries yeah revolutionary would right, you say yeah right, they, i would um so rule breakers i'm so excited to speak to ollie i'm a huge fan of him um i really enjoyed the documentary i really enjoyed the documentary it's so fascinating and i have so many questions so let's speak to ollie ring 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 ding a ding ding a ding ring 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 a ding 
Ollie. Hello. Ollie, Ollie. Um, first of all, I want to say thank you so much for coming on our podcast. What a pleasure it is to see you and to hear you. <laughs> it's lovely to meet you. Oh, thank you so much, uh, obviously, for coming on. But also, congratulations with the yeah. documentary. Rosie and I really enjoyed it. Uh, we just thought it was so, 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 so interesting. So the documentary is called 25 Siblings and Me. Yeah. Right. Uh, Ollie, you're the star. Oh, God. Um, so this is how we discovered you. So tell the listener, you know, what what that documentary was about and who you are. I think as the title suggests, I meet 25 siblings and myself wow. meets them. So, um... <laughs> but, um yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just curiosity, to be honest. Um, right. You know, I, I think a lot of people just have this sort of burning desire to meet their their biological relatives. Um, and when I first went into it and tried to find who, out who the donor was, you know, I wasn't really thinking about siblings. You know, right. my focus was mainly on the donor. Right. But I actually personally found that actually what ended up becoming much of, of a bigger deal to me what, what, what this, was the sibling part of it um, as opposed to the actual donor. I guess perhaps, you know, if you're from the sort of same generation, maybe maybe you're more relatable, you know, more relatable mm-hmm. uh, than a, you know, than a sort of father type, you know what I mean, an old, older guy. Right. Um, so that's maybe why relatability, I guess. Um, so um, you know, let's go back yeah. in time. So um, you are, so you were born, conceived with a sperm donor uh, in a same-sex relationship. Uh, do you remember the moment you found out you were conceived of a donor? Do you remember being told it and how, how did it make you feel? Well, I think the thing is, is a lot of people ask this question of, oh, when were you told? And I think ideally you don't want a donor-conceived child to sort of be told, you know. You want them to sort of just grow up knowing. Right. And, you know, obviously when they're quite young, you know, you sort of have to phrase it in a slightly different, you know, in a more sort of age-appropriate way. So that could be, for example, you know, you know, two mummies can have kids together, two daddies can have kids together, sure. a daddy and a mummy can sure. have kids together. But in you know, in order to make a baby, you need something from a from a you know from a man who's not necessarily a daddy, right? You know, to help the two mummies, right? Sure. Do you know what I mean? Sure, yeah, that makes total sense. And what was it like for you growing up with two mums? Because Rosie and I are obviously two women, and we were having a baby. And yeah. I think that the one thing that we get a lot from people who uh, from are quite traditionally thinking yeah. is, uh, you know, oh, you know, how do you feel about your child being raised without this strong staple father figure? And we think, oh, for goodness sake. Well, first of all. Just because they haven't got a biological, biologically present father doesn't mean necessarily that they'll have no male role model. Mm. Uh, mm. But what was li- life like for you? You know, did you did you feel like growing did you feel up with special? Did you feel <laughs> yeah. special? Well, I mean, the honest answer, and I think we sort of have to come to sort of, I guess, the child's perspective in terms yes, of, I guess, of growing up around other children that you know have most likely have different family structures. Um, right. You know, and it. Uh, it, was, it was all sorts of funny things. The reactions I had was never it was never really negative. Like I was just known uh, as the kid at school with the two hot lesbian mothers. So you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, what more could you want? You know? um, no, exactly. Um, it was sort of you know it was quite funny, but you know I think it sort of starts off from like an early age. If it's great that we're now in a 
I guess, you know, and having struggling a bit in the education system myself, I've been to multiple right. schools, right. but not at a single one of them was there ever really any negative, you know, there was a bit of sort of giggly interest in the fact that I have two mums, you know, right, we, kids right. at school found it a bit fun, but there was <laughs> never, there was never a case, you know, where I actually felt like people were going to bully me because of it. Right, or to, okay. you know, and I think that that is actually monumental because if you just look a few decades ago, um, you know, there probably would have been quite a lot of bullying towards um, children having same-sex uh, parents. So, right. you know, although it's not completely gone, yeah. you know, things have changed so much in the past few decades. So I think from the child's perspective, the sort of conversation that we'd be having, you know, a decade or even ago would be very different to one that we're having now where we can actually talk about you know, the more interesting side of it rather than having to actually talk about how we stop bullying or how we stop massively negative stigmas, you know. Oh, that's Both the answer three. we were wanting to hear. That's fantastic. <laughs> and Ollie, for context, how old are you as well? And because, um, you know, you're talking about you didn't have any, you didn't get bullied or have too much stigma around well, you. Well, in regards to having gay parents, yeah. But I yeah. was a bit of a weirdo at school, I'm not going to lie. I'm 21. weren't we all? Um, <laughs> That's the best type of person. Best to be. type yeah. of person, 100%. Most interesting, I think. Yes. <laughs> so, so, Ollie, on your journey, which I'm, I, I imagine has been just so crazy for you. Gosh, yeah. Um, how did it feel discovering you had this many siblings? And how did you discover it? Was it like, did you log into the donor sibling registry first in order to find your donor? Father, I contacted or? the bank. Right, right, okay. And, yeah, and it's actually much easier to to get in contact with siblings of the same donor right. um, than it is to actually get in contact with the donor. Yeah, I can imagine. So I just went through the bit of getting in contact with the siblings um, and then they obviously then introduced me to him. Right. But it was sort of... It was sort of weird, though, because they wanted me to, like, you know, go to a notary and, like, have my identity confirmed, like, all this sort of, like, stuff, which was just a bit a bit sort of mad. Yeah. You know, I, I did it eventually. I, I got there. Um, so, and did you did you find out immediately about all of them? Or was it like, oh, at the bank, like, oh, okay, we've confirmed your Ollie. Took a few oh, weeks. Right, okay. And did more siblings just keep yeah. filtering yeah, through? Just, like, and what was the feeling each time? <laughs> well, they all are in a group together, pretty much, apart from a couple of them. Um, so I just went into the Scoop chat and then, wow. well, um, there we go. I've met all of the, most of them now. <laughs> That's crazy. And do you, this might sound like a really strange question, but do you consider them family? Do you consider them friends? Yeah, how do you view, because obviously you can pick your own family. I, I'm a firm believer of that. You can choose your own family. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, what's your view? Um, I mean, I went into it thinking, oh, we just share genes. It's not a big deal. Like, you know, I don't really care, but that changed quite a bit, to be honest. You know, I ended up feeling quite close to all of them. You know, even the ones that I've sort of not really gotten along with, I still have some sense of, of closeness to them. Yeah. You know, so that's just been my experience, I guess. There are some people in general, you know, who want nothing to do really with their, with their siblings, just generally speaking, yeah. um, if right. they're only conceived. Others that consider them like, you know, you're my flesh and blood, you know, we're in this together, yeah. you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, and yeah. some people in between. It just depends on, on what everyone's individual circumstances, though, really. And how did your mums uh, feel about you doing that? Oh, God, that? like <laughs> tiger mum, like proper, <laughs> like raw, like who is this man? Like, you know... <laughs> 
mm-hmm. which yeah. I think it's natural if you've raised a child and you've you've you know so it's feel a bit you know quite quite defensive and I think it's actually generally more difficult to mm. be honest for heterosexual couples um, because of course if yeah. you know based on the social stigma that you know that many men have this idea that you weren't able to you know produce a child yourself is almost like you know I guess there's this right not quite it's not a very nice stigma you know in the sense of uh you know not being like a man you know not being manly enough to be able to be fertile do you know what I mean right of course yeah Rosie and I sometimes have the the conversation, you know, if we could, would we meet the donor that we have picked? Now, I, I... At the moment, I, I feel like I would because yeah. obviously for us, you know, it took us a really long time to settle on a sperm donor. At first, we we thought, oh, you know, we're, we'll pick really quickly. That's the kind of people we are. I also think we probably had more access yeah. to more information about the donor mm. than perhaps your mums did, Ollie, because yeah. I think, because the time's changing, I think we had a bit more information. Which yeah. sometimes makes it more complicated because yeah, the more information you have, the more you've got to think, oh God, do I care about this? Do I care about that? Yeah. yeah. But my question is, have either of your mums met your donor i mean i forced them on the phone with my donor when i first found out about it all and they were just like hmm ollie ollie i don't mm, ollie i was just like come on go on go on i'm sure you'll get along well come on come on i just like shoved the phone and in, in, you know in her face and sort of nice you know, and she uh nice. you know but she ends up having an okay chat and um you know, okay. and I just say go for it. I mean, the worst that can happen is you decide, oh, we're not interested in knowing him. And the best that can happen is you are. Right. And then perhaps, you know, you may both mutually agree that they have a, a weird sort of cousin type relationship, you know, where where, where they <laughs> yeah. sort of pop over once a year, you know, maybe, you know, oh, this is whatever. And the kid's like, yeah, okay, you know, but, you know, so it de- really depends. Some people want nothing to do with the donor they don't want the child before the child turns 18 to have anything to do with their donor um right. and some people potentially might might be interested in it. oh okay you know they're sort of there there's sort of like a a third cousin that you've never really heard of you know do you know do you know what i mean it really depends on the individual yeah, totally and what do. you're yeah. comfortable with a third it, cousin twice removed you know <laughs> yeah. that sort of thing it, it scares me because there's this saying like don't meet your idols and it's worrying you you meeting your donor because i, I we like our donor that we've chosen as from what we know of him mm. but then it's like what if we met him and actually it was really disappointing or what if they had terrible views Views or yeah. do you know what I mean? Um, well, it might be different for us though, Rosie, because we got we've got such a lot of information about our mm, donor, yeah. and we kind of know his views on things. But obviously, yeah. you never yeah. know someone truly but, until you meet them. But were you prepared, Ollie, when you met the donor? Were you prepared? You know, maybe you might be disappointed, or you might feel no connection. Like, how do you prepare yourself? For those emotions, I mean, I have to say, like, what it was good because you did put some, you know time aside for me to be able to have a proper chat and to really speak with me and I appreciated that because you know when he you know became a donor really you know even an anonymous donor then he revoked his anonymity um you know we sort of signed up for the sort of the I guess a bit of the uh, at least a bit of the baggage of his offspring might want to actually meet him and you know he he, I have to say, you know, he's been really good with actually giving people that opportunity to, you know, at, at least briefly chat with him and, you know, get to sort of 
meet the person that there's their biological parent. So in my case, I'm really happy about that. But I, I know that that's not always the case. Some donors don't want anything to do with their biological offspring. And I just think someone shouldn't be a sperm donor, um, really, unless they are open to at least... Um, allowing any offspring to get to know them in the future, even briefly. Um, that's my personal view on the topic, but I, other people will feel differently, you know. Interesting. I agree with your viewpoint as well. One thing that I do find interesting, actually, so I don't know if you know why my parents had to go to the US, because um, essentially they wanted to do it so that the egg from one mother would be fertilized and then placed in the other mother. But the um, place they went to actually refused it um, to do it, to do the procedure for them. So they had to go to the US. But even in terms of current policy, you know, clinics can refuse people based on certain factors. So for example, even, um, you know, your, your job or your criminal record and things like that can influence um, based on, you know, the research that I've done. And to be honest, in my opinion, you know, that there should be, you know, just because certain couples have to go through a clinic doesn't mean that, you know, that sort of gives the green light to opportunistically try and sort of add a few more, sneak a few more requirements in or, or gain a bit more control that, that, that other people don't have, the vast majority of the population don't have. So, in regards to sort of actually, um, you know, your decision to actually, you know, d do whatever, it'd be interesting to know what, what they actually looked at in regards to um, deciding to actually to, to, to have a child. What, what did the clinic sort of look at? It's really interesting because we looked at a couple of clinics and they yeah. have different rules. And one clinic didn't accept gay donors. Interesting. I, I think it was because they were worried that the the because obviously two gay men can't have a baby unless they yeah. use a surrogate or however they do it. I wondered if they worried that... The clinic said to us, oh, you know, we don't accept sperm from gay donors because we're worried as a bank that they will become too emotionally invested yeah. in the child. Which isn't really yeah, for them to say. Which I thought them, was though. out of line yeah. in a big way. Yeah. So there are all these rules and it's interesting because you in the documentary, if you, yeah. if you don't mind talking about it, you looked into becoming a sperm donor yourself. So why don't we talk about that? Because I think that's an amazing thing is it because you you know you un you saw the struggle your parents went through to get sperm and have to go to the US and do it so so yeah i mean i was i i was interested to be honest now um i've decided that even if i was eligible i would i i would only really want to do known donation purely because i actually want to be picky about who i who I procreate with, um, you know. Um, so it's sort of it's just to flip it on its head, you know, being rejected because I'm, you know, apparently have, you know, um, undesirable traits, sort of, it's sort of a bit funny flipping it on its head and being the picky one myself. Um, sure, they're not expecting that. But, um, but to, to sort of understand, you know, how these things come about, you know, the HFEA guidelines are actually very broad. Mm. So some of the things that, that some of the guidelines will be like, you know, the offspring cannot have the risk of a serious inheritable condition. Um, for example, um, and yet, of course, I think you had the London Sperm Bank previously um, actually refused dyslexic donors 
um, <gasps> which make up ten percent. Well, I mean, I think it is. There's a correlation, but that that makes up ten percent of the population. Which, of course, amid a, a donor shortage, is probably not the most responsible thing to do to no, rule out ten percent of donors. So, in terms of the control, I think there are good types of control. For example, a ten donor limit, transparency with medical conditions, all of that. And there are other sort of types of con- con- control where actually I just don't think it's a, a sort of a, a genetic counsellor's business um, really making decisions for and on behalf of, of recipients, to be honest. Yes, yeah, I agree. I do find it interesting, you know, how, for example, someone such as myself who, who has Asperger's, you know, who's actually, you know, done quite well. I'm actually, write, write, you know, writing my own book at the moment. He's actually, you know, I've I've had my struggles, but I'm also, you know, I've done actually quite well for myself, I yeah, think. Yeah, for sure. You do, oh. you have. Uh, they're being, like, cruel, like, no, we don't want the sperm because you have this trait. Yeah. But what Autism's if... scary bad. Autism's right, scary yeah, bad. Right, yeah, exactly. Right. But what that, if um, someone used your sperm and they had, like, the next, I don't know, like, you know, the next amazing doctor who invents something and <laughs> well, the, the next, next music. Yeah, next, next big you know, big artist. You know, you can't you can't say that, what that those babies don't to deserve be like. to be born. And, and yeah. as you said, there aren't these constraints in real life. You know, people meet neurodivergent people all the yeah. time and have children. Uh, wouldn't dream exactly. of saying no because they fall in love and they're yeah. ju- you know they're people and yeah, uh, and they fall in love and they have children. And so so do those children not deserve to be born? It's terrible. And uh, I mean, the thing is also people don't really understand the larger implications of autism in terms of actually, um, you know, how the genes of autism come about, how they affect our ability, uh, people's ability to be able to, to recognise patterns. You know, if you look at, I think there was a, new, there was a scientist called Simon Baron-Cohen, not, not Sasha Baron-Cohen, I'm not talking about Borat. <laughs> Are um, you sure? <laughs> but in terms of uh, some of his work, they actually look at... Um, you know, the strengths of autistic people and actually why, um, you know, the strong case for why the genes for autism currently exist. They've also actually found some quite interesting stats. So in areas um, like in Silicon Valley, there's actually a higher percentage of people on the spectrum moving there for work, essentially, which was an interesting um, thing they looked at in regards to the population in certain areas have higher amounts of autism where there are more more jobs of a certain type. Right. Wow. So, of course, you do absolutely have some people with autism that suffer from it as a disability, but we also have to analyse what parts of, of, of that could be considered a disability. For example, um, you know, overstimulation, social difficulties and so on. And then what part of that could actually perhaps be considered a strength or a, a hyperability. And then also looking at the fact that the spectrum is so broad, you, you know, if you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. You have a really important um, perspective. Yeah, it is important. And I think you're right, not enough people are talking about it. And I think then maybe you need to, you know, you can hopefully get the conversation you know, started. I want to ask you, Ollie, um, for us as very new parents, you know, we're going to be parents this summer, very nervous. um, Do you have any advice from, you know, speaking as a donor child for for Of two mums. Of of two mums. Do you have any advice for us? (laughs) If I give you, if I give you bad advice, then I'm not liable. It's a loaded question. (laughs) It is a loaded question. I mean, all my advice would be is, of course, there are going to be some people's stupid opinions out there. And really, you know, my approach is, you know, in terms of when I think about, 
you know, my experiences and people right. that, which I haven't really faced that much prejudice of being gay, to be honest, but, you know, where I have had people be a bit funny about it, really yeah. the route I tend to go down is I try my best to educate people, you know, although it really, really pisses me off. Um, you know, I <laughs> love having an opportunity to actually open, you know, people's eyes a little to educate them and to, to normalise, you know, being gay and to stop it from being the sort of, you know, you know, you know, with all these silly assumptions, you know, gay people X or gay people Y, um, yeah, right, you know. Right. Um, and I guess my thing is that if people, there will be probably be a few weirdos that you encounter in your life, but, you know, if you don't want to go down the route of actually trying to educate them, you're also equally entitled to tell them to fuck off. So I that, like that. I like that. I like that. That's a strong um, message. I like that. Yeah, and, like and, that. and finally, the burning question: What do you call your mums? I, I call them by their first names usually. Do you? Um, wow. So, but I do sometimes call them mum or but but really I usually call them by their first name. I personally have never liked the whole mummy and daddy and like you know all of right, that. Right, I just, right. But that's just my personal preference. I, I'm not too sure they quite like that I call them by their first name. But um, it's not its not because I'm not close with them. It's just because I, that's what their name is. Yeah. Ollie, it, it's been so nice having you on our podcast. It's been so interesting to hear what life yeah. has been like for you. And and I just want to wish you all the best on your on your journey with your book, with everything that you're doing, yes. and with raising awareness as well about things it's that are really so important. important. So important. And, uh, and it's been such a pleasure getting to know you. Um, I just think you're just the most amazing person yeah. <laughs> well I think you'll be great parents by the way you seem very also like you really you really you know you care oh, a lot thank and you so much Ollie ring 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 ding a ding ding a ding ring 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 a ding oh my god I love him I love him absolutely love him also we could see him on zoom and he was wearing a fuzzy jumper and he also wore fuzzy jumpers in the documentary and we said at the time like he dresses so well I know like, he's we love such a cutie um, God and also what a genius yeah, sorry yeah genius a literal member of Mensa God. amazing honestly some of the stuff he said really blew me away and it really left some food for thought yeah you know? and it's so true like um, when he was like not many people are talking about this and I wonder if it's so hard already for uh, same-sex couples to, you know, it's already a difficult process to figure out how to do it, to raise the funds, right. to to go to the bank, to go to the clinic. And yet there are more hurdles, yeah. you and, know. And so maybe they spend so long just trying to get, get sperm and mm. hope that the sperm donor doesn't stop providing sperm oh and God, there's all yeah. these worries. Uh, I think maybe... Maybe they're a bit afraid to challenge, mm. you know, these issues yeah, I agree. that are arising. I think it's really fantastic that he's bringing I, up this stuff. I was going to say, I'm so glad that he is challenging them. I think if he donated, I think people deserve to have the information. Yeah. But they deserve to have all information about every single aspect of the donor. Because right. they're choosing to create life with this person. And right. that's all you're provided with is, inf- is some information. You don't know them as a person. Right. Um, the information we got was obviously compelling enough for us to pick yeah. our donor as our donor. And maybe that's but it. But then what if, like, I don't know, their life could take a massive turn and what if they turned out to be a murderer? Like, you did it. Yeah, really? I mean, let's hope not. But yes, yeah. I, I see what you're saying. Sometimes too much information isn't always a good thing also. So you yeah. have to make a decision based on what you think is going to work for you. But at this point in time, I'd be well up for meeting our donor. At but then point, again, before the baby's born. No, no, I take it back. 
And maybe when the baby is old enough to go out and meet the, the donor, and if our baby gives me the opportunity to make contact, then I would take it. Yes, yeah. I would. One thing that was interesting um, when I watched Ollie's documentary, 25 Siblings and Me, is that um, loads of the siblings looked a lot like each yeah, other. Yeah, they did, actually. Uh, even though they've all got different pet, they've all got different mothers. Yeah. They've all used the same donor sperm. It was um, yeah. strong genes in that, in that yeah. they all looked, they but, looked like family. For sure. Um, and that was so interesting because it's like, will what will my baby, our baby look like? Like, I, I have no idea. I can't see. It's so weird that you don't know. Can't wait for that 40 scan. Yeah. <laughs> So next week, we're going to be looking through the Rose and Rosie PG hashtag um, and seeing what you've all been saying. And I'm really excited. I can't wait. Totally. Rose and Rosie Parental Guidance is a Spotify original from BBC Studios. It's produced by Leila Navabi. The executive producers are Rihanna Coleman and James Cater for Spotify and Julie McKenzie for BBC Studios. To never miss an episode, make sure you're following Rose and Rosie Parental Guidance on Spotify and to join in the conversation, use the hashtag Rose and Rosie PG. See you next time. <laughs>